Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is a guest uh, who we've featured before on this show, Allison Schrager. She's a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of City Journal. She's an economist with very wide-ranging interests, the author of An Economist Walks into a Brothel, a book about understanding risk in everyday life. Her scholarly research focuses on public finance, tax policy, labor markets, and monetary policy. And she's been writing up a storm for City Journal lately, covering such topics as shareholder primacy, which is the theme of her forthcoming essay in our spring issue, uh, the latest legislative proposals on the economy from Washington, and the COVID-19 pandemic and its economic consequences. Allison, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's start with that uh, forthcoming essay, uh, which is on shareholder primacy. This is a subject uh, fundamental to the way we think about the structures of the economy. Um, and it's it's uh, a debate about whether uh, shareholders and stake or stakeholders should be the, you know, the, the agent in the economy that goes back to, uh, you know, decades to 1970. Uh, when Milton Friedman, the famous economist, wrote a landmark essay uh, that the primary social responsibility of business is to simply increase profits. Now, lately, in particular, that doctrine uh, has been coming under ferocious attack, with many arguing that corporation corporations should be, you know, pushing the interests of stakeholders, and stakeholders could include customers, employees, suppliers, uh, local communities. Uh, and the push is coming not just from activists, but now from business figures with the Business Roundtable actually recommending that companies embrace stakeholder capitalism in a statement it made a couple of years ago. So maybe just to set the terms of the discussion, what exactly is this idea of stakeholder capitalism and how are businesses supposed to further the interests of stakeholders? Well, you, you actually sort of described it quite well, which is with shareholder primacy, uh, you know, the corporation's obligations are to shareholders, which is you know, effectively to um, increase profits because that increases the share price and that is what, um, or dividends, because that is what shareholders care about. With st the stakeholder model, it's not just shareholders, there are other I guess, stakeholders involved. It could be employees, it could be members of the community. Uh, what community means is unclear. It could be people in your community, it could be people the entire world, the entire country. But uh, as you can see, as I said, it becomes much more muddied. Who these stakeholders are, it also becomes more muddied of how much weight do they get in these decisions. If you just have shareholders, it's pretty clear. But when you have multiple stakeholders and sometimes their interests are at odds with each other, it's not quite clear how you raise all these things, how, how you balance all these issues. And so obviously accountability also gets muddied. Well, you know, this, this uh, suggests that you know, the act of defining who a stakeholder is, is almost unavoidably political, right? Uh, because, you know, the, the you, you have the President Joe Biden, I think, defining stakeholders as including all of society. Um, so, you know, differentiating among these st stakeholders then becomes, uh, you know, an act of politics. Exactly. I said, when you asked me to write this, I think it was like last summer, but now we're seeing sort of what the costs of that are. 
Because as I said, sometimes stakeholders have different objectives that are at odds with each other. And when you don't, and so ultimately who the stakeholders are and how much their needs should be given weight is ultimately always going to be a political exercise because it really just comes down to values. And we live in times that where values have never been more politicized. And I think we're just definitely seeing this lately with Major League Baseball, all these corporations in Georgia, of who really are they accountable to? And you were also seeing, you know, their business costs for it. You alienate some people, you ate not only your customer base, but also maybe some of your employees. And couldn't there be um, negative economic effects from this? I, I assume, uh, you know, companies that fail to deliver value for, for their shareholders could then just resort to saying, well, we're, we're benefiting our stakeholders. Yeah, exactly. Um, which, you know, I think, you know, Friedman's essay, you know, it's come under fire lately because they're like, even sort of champions of it are saying, well, you know, maybe it made sense in the, in the 70s, but it doesn't make sense now. And I think the opposite. I think it's never been more relevant because, um, you know, we live in a, such a politicized environment now that it, it sort of, as it helps um, sort of the sort of boards not to be focused on profit, which does allow them not to be um, push their companies to be the best they can be, the most innovative they can be. We we have this one of the um, arguments against shareholder value is that it's made companies less focused on innovation. Although I'm not quite sure why bringing more stakeholders into the party would make them more focused on innovation, considering innovation is expensive, it's risky, and tends to be very long term oriented, and also often displaces labor. So, you know, why why are so many businesses now uh, embracing this idea of stakeholder capitalism? Is it because they see it as a way to sidestep their their obligations to shareholders? That would be the cynical explanation, or or is uh, is it really a question that you know corporate leaders are are moving to the left? That the the leaders of these companies actually agree with the notion of stakeholder capitalism? Um, I tend to be more charitable. I don't think it's cynical. They just don't want to be accountable. I think their lives are easier when they are accountable. I think it is, as I said, you, you, you can't go against the mob now. Um, you know, there are costs to offending people, but we're certainly um, people who, who want businesses to take on these moral stances. But how can a CEO now say, you know what, we only care about profits? I mean, that would strike many as heartless. You could get a Twitter mob after you. You could have uh, boycotts. You know, it's definitely lower risk just to say, oh, yeah, yeah, we care about everyone. Right. So and, and the social media factor is significant, I would say. The you know, the organization, the organizing of these kind of Twitter campaigns against companies that don't meet the appropriate political standards. I guess as a business leader, you've got to start thinking about those things. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, if you're a business leader, especially in a large corporation, you're a very politically savvy person um, by definition. And I think they read the room that, you know, you, you can't afford just to sort of keep your head down and do your job. I remember, I think it was in the 90s, Michael Jordan said, you know, Republicans buy sneakers too, so I'm not going to alienate them. It's hard to imagine an NBA player making a statement like that now. Yeah, true enough. Um, but it is a, a significant problem, I think, long term. Uh, yes. So Friedman's argument was that shareholder primacy benefited both the firms economically and it benefited society. And I think in this hyper political environment, that's actually even more true because it's not healthy for our society. It is better for firms to be focused on profits. I said, not only does it necessarily alienate their customer base and even their employees, but, you know, work is one of the few situations um, 
where people of different political affiliations come together and have to cooperate, especially these days. So, you know, once corporations become more political, you know, they're going to hire more politically homogenous people and we lose those interactions, which are also very valuable and important for society. Well, let's turn to uh, another theme of your recent work for us, which is uh, Washington, what's going on with the Biden administration and with Congress, uh, where there's been a slate of new legislative proposals on the economy. These include the $2 trillion American jobs plan, as well as uh, steep proposed tax increases for corporate income and capital gains. So let's let's look at some of this uh, you know, more closely. What about the taxes? The capital gains hike would return, I think, the top marginal rate to, I mean, certainly levels unseen since the 70s, uh, while the, the proposed rate for, the, for corporations, I think, is 28%. That would make the U.S. tax regime really uh, one of the more punishing ones in the world, right, in the developed world uh, for businesses. So, you know, w- wouldn't these kind of reforms make the United States a less attractive place to do business? I mean, for sure. I mean, how much, you know, it's still a very arcane tax system. So I think really we're losing efficiency more than we're going to gain revenue from these proposals. Um, you know, it's like even when the ta- when the um, corporate tax rate was what, like 37%, um, the tax base is a different issue, which is how you can dodge those taxes. Um, so I'm sure we'll just see more ways of getting around taxes, which is it. It's just bad for everyone. You lose efficiency. I think the message is particularly harmful, right? I, I feel like what is a common thread in all these policies, be it the infrastructure bill, which is not all infrastructure, corporate taxes and raising capital gains taxes is shifting innovation from the private sector and into the public sector. We want the public sector to be the primary innovator, to decide which industries are going to grow, and to make a risky investment in the private sector as unappealing as possible. And I think that psychological shift is actually even more worrying than these actual tax policies, which just really introduce a lot of more inefficiencies into our tax, back into our tax system. Well, this is uh, this is one of the criticisms you've made about the infrastructure, the proposed infrastructure bill, right? That it would uh, um, begin to reshape the U.S. economy from one driven by private innovation to one where the government is is picking and choosing the projects to allocate capital to. Um, you know, is this really a kind of industrial policy that some of our friends, including on the right, uh, have been advocating? Yeah, pretty much. And I mean, industrial policy, I used to think of as a dirty word, but now everyone seems to think that's code for something wonderful. The problem is, is the track record with industrial policy is terrible. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, people are looking at countries like China and thinking, oh, wow, you know, they have great industrial policy. Um, they are growing like crazy. They're not having the downturns we are. Of course, these come at great cost, um, not only to human rights, although that's not inevitable but also in terms of economic freedom. And also, I think one of the reasons the private sector is better at, I said leaving innovation to the private sector is always better. So innovation is really how we grow and prosper as a society. And actually, um, ironically, it is also how we become more environmentally friendly because innovation is about using resources more efficiently. So, but the, the fact is we've, we don't have a great track record with the public sector being the primary innovator. Public sector is very good at sort of taking a market-proven technology that is clearly we already have a need for, and then sort of ramping that up. 
But actually picking winners for what's going to be the next great technology, they don't have a great track record of that. And that's why most industrial policies sort of turned out to be wasteful. They divert capital from its most productive uses, and it turns out not really ending well. Now, back in March, you wrote an essay for us, or piece for us, suggesting that public health authorities uh, had failed in communicating the level of risk that COVID-19 posed to ordinary citizens. This is, is, you know, question of risk is a major theme of of a lot of your work. Now, too often the the leaders of the country gave, in in your argument, inconsistent or even dishonest advice rather than telling people the truth. And now the CDC will reportedly loosen mask guidance uh, for people who've already been vaccinated, which is good news. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some public health leaders have admitted that they should encourage people to get the vaccine rather than scold them into compliance. Um, You know, these seem to me to be pretty welcome developments, but is this too too little, um, really too late for an agency that some folks tuned out, you know, really early on in the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, credibility is important. So there's this widespread conventional wisdom, um, or I guess just conventional wisdom, that you know, humans are terrible risk takers. We can't make any sense of risk and uncertainty. We certainly can't even make sense of risk when the risks we take pose harm to others. But, you know, that, that's largely a myth. Actually, people are very good at taking risk. I mean, we are built to live with risk. And actually, as humans, we've been dealing with deadly pandemics, you know, for, for many thousands of years. But the evidence does show people are lousy risk takers when they get inconsistent and confusing information that they can't fully trust. If you present risks to people in coherent ways that make sense to them and is intuitive to their natural understanding of risk, people actually make very fairly good decisions. And I think, you know, we, we sort of have had this idea of nudging people to better decisions and maybe not being fully honest and sort of manipulating people into making better choices. And I think we're seeing that just failed spectacularly this past year because no one really knows what's going on. I'm even seeing social media, or certainly on the streets of New York City, pushback from the idea that we're going to stop wearing masks on the street. Like why we were ever wearing masks on the street is unclear. You know, even Anthony Fauci has admitted, well, you know, it's really hard to get it outdoors in a fleeting encounter if you're not near anyone, which walking down the sidewalk in New York tends to be. But, you know, I, I can't blame for people for being so confused and so risk averse while other people are just sort of not wearing masks at all, even in very high risk situations, because the messages we've gotten on things like masking or on things like vaccine have been so confusing. I think I just saw that the CDC is now saying pregnant women shouldn't get the vaccine. I mean, after pushing us for weeks that we should. I mean, as I said, it's so confusing. And, you know, no wonder people can't make smart risk choices is because they're not getting clear, consistent information in any way. You had written an essay, you know, uh, last year, a very interesting essay for us on uh, different attitudes uh, about risk in different parts of the country. I wonder if you've thought any more about that in, you know, against the backdrop of the pandemic. Certainly different states have uh, reacted differently to uh, the, you know, the, the question of risk. Yeah, I think, you know, as I said, watching it play out, it just became more and more true or sort of became that that argument became more more clear to me. As I said, we just do see different levels of risk tolerances in different parts of the country. Um, I'm told that, you know, other than, you know, coastal cities, no one's been wearing masks outdoors Um, or people are more comfortable with going to doing indoor dining. And to some degree, as I said, it does suggest different risk tolerances. But we see this not with the pandemic behavior in other ways. I mean, to some degree, a larger welfare state reflects 
less risk tolerance. Um, and we see some states uh, sort of wanting less risk. And it's ironic because I think the perception has always been that more red states are more risk averse. You know, conservatives suggest taking less risk, you know, uh, or less, like being less open to social change. But in other ways, you see conservative states being much more open to risk. And I sort of, one of my sort of vague predictions, which last year I would, hadn't really thought through as much, but is now seeming a lot more clear, is that one uh, result of the pandemic is we might see a risk reshift. So, and I think this is one of the beauties of federalism. You see some states that allow individuals to take more risk, have less of a safety net. And if you want to opt into that, you can move to those states. And I think we're starting to see, not huge, but some sort of risk migration based on preferences. Very interesting. Thanks very much, Allison. Don't forget to check out Allison Schrager's work on the City Journal website, www.city-journal.org. We'll link to her author page in the description. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. And as always, if you like what you've heard on the podcast, please give us a nice ratings on iTunes. Again, Allison, thanks very much. Always, always great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.